traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. A quiet revolution is happening in asset management. A centuries-old model is under strain. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and in this episode, meet the money doctors. We'll be hearing from insiders about an industry changing beyond recognition. Digital engagement has gone through the roof. That march towards better value with increased transparency. I think that that's not going to go away. We'll explore how the pursuit of higher returns is forcing firms to rethink how they operate. We have a Camelot in our minds. We are public market investors. We're intensely involved in overseeing companies. And the truth is that Camelot never existed. And find out what this means for the future of a business built on the art of prediction. You're skating towards where the puck will be rather than where it is. And this leapfrogging of new technology to replace these legacy businesses is now routine. Most people have little idea how to invest, just as they have little idea how to treat health problems. Patients value and are steered by doctor's advice, even where it is generic and even self-serving. So a trio of economists, Nicola Ginaioli, Andrei Schleifer and Robert Vishny, argued that fund managers act as money doctors. The money doctor's job is to give people the confidence to take on investment risk. And, as in medicine, manner and confidence are often as important as efficacy. To help sort the quacks from the true specialists, I'm joined by John O'Sullivan, The Economist's Buttonwood columnist and the author of a special report on the industry, which you can read at economist.com. John, welcome to Money Talks. Thank you for having me. You've been immersing yourself in this world for the past few months. What can you tell us about the art of asset management? Do we know what makes a brilliant manager? I think if we knew what made a good manager, the whole thing would be a lot easier for investors to navigate. And it also might be a, a less profitable industry. So let's just maybe get our terms straight first of all. By asset management, I mean tending to the assets, basically what you buy in terms of stocks or bonds, what you invest in in terms of hedge funds. And that's distinct from wealth management, which is something that happens a bit further upstream, where you have specialist financial advisors that tell you what to invest in. The asset management industry is the bit that does the actual investing. And how they make money is they charge a fixed fee on the assets they manage. The customers bear the full cost if things go down, but if things go up or even if they stay the same, the asset managers make some money on a fixed slice of of the assets they manage. And where did the idea come from and how old is the industry? Well, you can start the clock where where you want to, really. I think a good place to start the story, certainly of the modern asset management industry, is in the second half of the 19th century. 
in March 1868, a prospectus for a new sort of money management scheme actually showed up in The Economist. It was, I'm sure, available elsewhere too. This was at the Foreign and Colonial Investment Trust, which basically put together a dozen or so, what we might think of as today as high-yielding bonds, into a portfolio and invited people to buy a share in that trust. And that particular investment trust still survives to this day, 152 years later. But uh, the, the modern asset management industry is much, much, much bigger. It now manages north of $100 trillion worth of assets. And what's the point of it? I mean, obviously, the idea is to provide a, a return to investors. But what's the broader economic purpose of asset management? Well, I mean, that's not nothing. Uh, but it's really to manage both sides of the, the investment equation. For the customers, for the investors, they are looking to reach certain financial goals. Often there'll be retirement. On the other side of the investment equation is who uses that money that is invested. This is what puts the asset management industry at the centre of capitalism, because really it's taking savings and putting to good work, finding the best companies, the best investment opportunities out there to invest in. So in a sense, it's the mechanism by which savings are used to help the economy grow, to find the best companies, to find the best ideas. As you say, providing a return to investors isn't nothing. It's an important promise to make. How well has it lived up to that promise over the years? Well, the invention of the the mutual fund, the sort of collected pooled investment of the sort of the FNC Trust, it did allow people of more modest means to access securities that would actually be quite expensive for them to find or to buy and sell easily. So in that piece of the, the story, it's been sort of successful. In terms of how well it has invested that money on behalf of investors, not so good. If you take a benchmark like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500, that provides a reasonable benchmark for investor expertise. If you can beat the average, then you're a good investor. If you're beaten by the average, you're a bad one. And by and large, the asset management industry has not been able to, in aggregate, beat the index. The first study of this was back in 1968 by Michael Jensen, but there's been countless studies ev- ever since that the active management of assets, particularly stocks, generally doesn't beat the market. You'd be better off just buying a basket of, of stocks from the index and, and just leaving it at that. Now, as you say in the report, John, in recent years, there's been quite a few changes going on in the industry. And I'm interested to hear what people at the heart of those changes have got to say about them all. And I know you've been talking to a lot of fund managers and to other people in the know. So let's start, say, by diving into how what investors want has been changing. What have you found out? A few things. So let's start with the institutional investors, pension funds, insurance companies, and so on. One of the things they want is lower fees. For a long time, it wasn't clear to a lot of investors what they were paying for, what was rolled up into the fees, trading costs, research, and so on. So one response from investors is simply just to, to buy an index fund, which is fairly cheap, and have the computers do the buying for you, and you know exactly what it is that you're getting and what you're paying for. A second thing is, paradoxically, a lot of institutional investors are looking for fewer relationships, but deeper relationships. So if you have fewer asset managers, it's easier to keep tabs on what your whole portfolio is doing. The interesting thing is that we're seeing something fairly similar in retail investing. There's a greater sensitivity about fees, so people do want lower fees. Why wouldn't they? But they're actually also looking for more engagement, more hand-holding from the people that manage their money for them. And that's not just the super rich, that's also investors of more modest means. 
I'm Kathy Murphy. I'm president of Personal Investing at Fidelity Investments, responsible for helping millions of clients in the U.S. achieve their financial goals. Fidelity, based in Boston, is one large asset manager that serves both kinds of business, institutional investors, but also retail investors. I think a silver lining of this pandemic, unlike the last big recession we had in 2009, our clients across the U.S. have gotten more engaged in their finances. We have seen not only a dramatic increase in the number of clients that have opened accounts with us, a 60% increase year over year, but also more engagement by existing customers. I think that that's not going to go away. Secondly, digital engagement has gone through the roof. And the third category I would say, I'll give you three, this is the third, is that march towards better value. With increased transparency, with the commoditization of so much of financial services, I think will also be more and more important as we see this decade unfold. And is there, is there demand for new sorts of products? The asset management industry is, is sort of a creature of, of the boomers. It's grown up with a particular age cohort of customers. Are you now adjusting to a, a new sort of customer that wants different sorts of products? Well, yes. And I would say sometimes these things start out with younger customers, but the, the trends to me are much broader than just younger clients. So for example, these separately managed accounts with much lower minimums, so there could be broader participation. Fidelity was the first firm to introduce a zero fee mutual fund. My sense is that certainly at Fidelity, we are challenging ourselves that we can continue to lead the way in providing either more simplified products or those products that serve specific needs. And I think most importantly is doing it with better value. That is a trend that goes across everybody. People want more value from the products that they're getting. John, can we talk a bit more about this push for better value? Of course, people have always wanted that, but lately the pressure on fees generally has intensified. Why has it happened now? Over the past several years, almost all of the flows of new investment funds has been into passive index funds or exchange traded funds. And almost all of the outflows have been from actively invested funds. Index funds are low cost, it will be the benchmark performance, and you're paying a very small fee for getting that performance. The deeper forces behind why people are looking more to index funds now, I think, is to do with declining interest rates. If your returns are expected to be low going forward, then the chunk that you pay in terms of fees has a bigger impact on your overall investment returns than it used to when returns were much higher. The winners from this trend are a handful of very large asset managers who dominate the world of index and passive investing. My name is Mark Weidman. I am responsible for the international business at BlackRock, as well as the firm's strategy. And I also help to lead our sustainability efforts across the firm. The two largest, Vanguard and BlackRock, had combined assets under management of $13.5 trillion by the end of 2019. The rise of indexing isn't really about indexing. It's about the rise of the whole portfolio as being the center of money management, not picking individual securities and products. So if you look at an organization like Norges Bank, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, they found that in their own portfolios, more than 99% of their returns come from basically their broad asset allocation decisions, not picking individual securities and products. And if that's the case, 
You as an investor are much more likely to pick index instruments, especially ETFs, because they're simple, clean ways to build a portfolio at different levels of granularity. You want emerging market equities, you want Brazil, you want Brazilian small cap. There's a product that can give you that without having to choose individual securities. And the other part is price. In a low rates world, price is increasingly important and clients want low prices and they want it on everything. So if you go back last year or before then, the next downturn was always talked about as an opportunity for active managers to prove their worth. What has actually happened this year? So active managers have long said they wanted one thing. Give me volatility, they said. I need to see stock prices and bond prices moving back and forth hard and fast, and that's when I can show I can make money. Well, this year, we got volatility in spades. And look, some active managers had a great year. At BlackRock, we are super proud that actually we are having the best year in performance for our clients in our active strategies we've ever had. And that's happening with some other active managers. But most did not. And it's just arithmetic. The alpha, the outperformance has to come from somewhere. It's a closed system. And for the rest of the industry, we continue to see a relentless decline, which you can see in the stock prices of many of the independent US and UK asset managers. So, John, what does this mean for the shape of the industry as a whole? We were just listening to Mark Weedman there talking about the tough outlook for many independent firms. Does the growth of passive management mean that bigger is now always going to be better? It's almost a, a cliche of, of business strategy that you either want to be a large scale player that deals in large volumes or you want to be a niche player that has fairly high margins. What we're seeing now in asset management is the sorting into the very large and the very small. Kathy Murphy at Fidelity is much more optimistic about the prospect for active asset management, though she's very clear about the key role of scale in the success of the very largest asset managers. I think that this notion of the permanent shift to passive only is way overdone. We have the full range of funds between passive and active. It's not an either or from my perspective. It's a both. Our focus has always been on using our scale to deliver value back to the customer. Bigger isn't always better. You know, there's sometimes niche expertise people want to pay for, but in general, scale is a benefit between our workplace and retail businesses. We have the most of every demographic category in the U.S., the most you know, young people, the most women, the most pre-retirees, the most retirees, the most millionaires. We're the second largest provider of index funds. And every time we grew to a certain size, we gave 50% of the value of that scale back to the customer in terms of lower prices. And today, we're now lower priced than Vanguard across the board on our retail funds, even though they're bigger than us, because our focus on scale translating into value. But it's not just sheer size, economies of scale. It's also economies of scope that the biggest players can provide. Here's Mark Weedman at BlackRock again. Clients are saying, I want to work with fewer and fewer vendors. I want a tighter relationship with them. I want to be better understood and I want a price discount for volume. And it's not really, actually, you hit it in your survey. It's not about supermarkets. It's more about doctors, advice, a deep relationship with somebody who you trust who helps you build an overall portfolio. So that's the primary thing that's driving that economies of scope is driving the industry's growth. And if you look at who's winning, it's global players who can pull it all together for a client. They're growing at between 4 and 6% a piece, including BlackRock, but not just BlackRock. 
And then generally the independents are shrinking. Clients are voting with their feet. They want to work with large global players or they want to work with boutiques. And so what you're going to see is the industry structure over time is going to become more and more like that. Okay, John, so there are clearly big consequences for the shape of the industry of this shift to passive and the continuing demand for lower fees. But what impact are these trends having on the broader role that asset management plays? I mean, does index investing weaken the incentives for fund managers to search for the best companies and then to engage with them to try and make them perform better? There's some evidence that it does. Obviously, if you're buying an index of of 500 or so companies, it's very difficult to greatly care about how one or other of those companies is doing in terms of their business strategy and so on. You're just really buying an asset class. So then the question is, as the ties between suppliers and users of capital become more tenuous, does this disconnection matter? I put this question to Mark Weedman at BlackRock. I love this debate because it evokes one of the oldest problems in finance, which is how do you get good governance of public companies with massive fragmentation of shareholdings? That's the basic problem. And John, you got to start, we all need to start by letting go of a mirage. We have a Camelot in our minds where public market investors were intensely involved in overseeing companies. And the truth is that Camelot never existed. If you're talking about private equity, Absolutely, that solves it. But it gets rid of the transparency and it gets rid of the democratic assets. So once you're in the fragmented shareholdings universe, the question is, what's the best way in an imperfect world of actually getting good governance oversight? And I'd say, actually, indexers like BlackRock have actually been a net contributor. Look, if you look at what realistically is happening and still happens beyond the indexing players, You have fragmented direct holdings by individuals and institutions who are not paying any attention. If you look at the indexing firms, and each of them owns, let's say, 3 to 5% on on average of companies around the world, they're at least focused on this problem as long-term owners. Regulated fiduciaries working only for our clients with an investing mindset. We help to set a commercial standard across companies as to what good governance is. And when it makes sense for an activist to get involved, it's a lot easier for them to call the indexing players as a coalition to support them than calling 87,000 people at home. So indexing isn't perfect, but I think on net we make the whole system work a little bit better. It's interesting because this comes back to where we started with what investors themselves want. Many of them now care a lot more about what they are investing in. And this is reflected in the growth of environmental, social and governance investing. One manager I spoke to said ESG will eventually be as important to a firm as its credit rating. A lot of people on the active side of the business are looking at ESG as a kind of saviour. I asked Cathy Murphy at Fidelity whether she thinks the rising importance of ESG could shift the balance back in favour of active asset management. I think ESG will play an important role. I don't think it's the full answer because... Customer preferences are really important. I think Europe's ahead of the U.S. in this regard. But you need to balance clients continue to have a high bar on performance. To your point, there's winners and losers in terms of active management. But those good active managers that have you know, fundamentally sound processes are now applying those processes to ESG. I do think that the ESG will continue to increase in the U.S. And that's a combination of a focus by asset management, but frankly, more importantly, is, again, being driven by client demand. There's a lot of focus on social causes and making sure that people are comfortable holistically, that their portfolios represent their beliefs and views. Coming up, the quest for yield. Has value investing had its day? And the promise and the peril of China. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The desperate search for higher returns is forcing investors to look further afield, and that's causing change at the other end of the asset management spectrum. In other words, the boom in passive investing has kind of spawned its antithesis. Niche companies run by humans in thinly trading assets charging high fees. John, how do you explain this? Well, I think that the growth of low-fee passive investing and high-fee investing in private assets is somewhat linked. If you're looking to do better than the market return, then you've given up on the idea of that an active asset manager in, in public markets is going to do that for you. And I think there's this growing faith, which is partly a consequence of better performance in private assets, such as private equity and venture capital, that private assets will make the difference for you. I'm Anne Glover. I'm a co-founder and chief executive of Amadeus Capital. It's a global technology investor based out of London. I'm also a non-executive on the court of the Bank of England. Anne Glover is also former chair of both the British and European private equity and venture capital associations. Passive industry investing has made a couple of changes. I mean, obviously, it's made capital markets much more liquid at the higher end, at the higher end of market capitalizations, where information is in effect measured often in milliseconds and very difficult to differentiate. And what that's done is it's made the bar for going public much higher. 20 years ago, you could go public in the US on a 50 or $100 million market cap. Now it's closer to a billion. I mean, perhaps in the UK, the bar is slightly lower still. It's maybe now only 400 million. But again, 20 years ago, it was 50 million. And that's left an important phase of company development that needs to be funded and has been filled by private market players in various guises, venture capital, growth, private equity, crossover funds. Are you hearing more from institutional investors about their interest in allocating to, to venture capital? Yes, I mean, they are more interested in allocating to venture capital because it's achieving extraordinary returns, even through the several crises that, that have happened. But I think the main problem for institutions is that their ticket sizes are often too large for venture capital. The only ones who've been able to do it have built their own internal teams who basically are sophisticated and doing uh, manager screening and manager selection in detail themselves. So there's still a gap. I think the institutions are missing out on these growth opportunities in a very big way. And the success of venture capital has gone hand in hand with a fundamental shift in the economy from tangible to intangible capital, from an economy where factories, office buildings and machinery were key to one where it's software, ideas, brands and general know-how that matter most. So, John, how's the asset management industry coping with this sea change? It's a very mixed picture. There is still a big part of the asset management industry that clings to the ideas of so-called value investing, which is to buy stocks that have a low price relative 
to their tangible capital, to their buildings, to their factories and so on. In the world of venture capital, it's a different story. It's all about finding the next big killer idea. And there's plenty of money, in America at least, going into that search. In fact, it's a recurring concern that there's lots of capital chasing too few good ideas. But most people in venture capital will tell you that's not the case. What everyone agrees is that it's very difficult to price intangible assets. And these now account for over a third of all American business investment. Here's Anne Glover again. The problem with value investing is that it presumes that there are existing assets that you can buy cheaply, that they already exist. And what's happened in the economy in general is that innovation is happening at a much faster pace than it ever used to. So a value investor really uh, is, is waiting for the asset to be created, but at the time it matures, it might be on the verge of being undermined by the next wave of innovation. So you're seeing entirely new ways of technology emerging and becoming globally significant, and the megatechs are the examples of that. And you know, within that group, who now lead the top market capitalization in the world, you know, only Microsoft has, has got a deep legacy history. Most of the rest have been formed in the last 15 years. And this leapfrogging of new technology to replace these legacy businesses is now routine. And, and that's where the venture capital view of the world, which is about where are you going, you're skating towards where the puck will be rather than where it is, matters as opposed to backward-looking financial analysis, which only tells you what happened last week. I also asked Anne Glover why she thinks America has, so far at least, had such an edge in the venture capital stakes, and whether the next decade might see it begin to be challenged by players in other parts of the world. I actually don't think America will lose its edge. I, I think it will still be the hotbed of innovation. I don't think it will necessarily grow a lot more. So I think, therefore, you know, China and Europe and Asia and India can catch up. But I still think it has the likelihood of producing these incredible outliers. And one of the reasons is that it has deep asset managers with the mutual funds in particular, not to mention also the pension funds themselves, who will not only invest in capital markets, i.e. listed securities, but will now invest in later stage private markets, pre-IPO investing, to help with the crossover process from private to public. We need to learn from that in Europe. And it's the one change that we really need to make in our European ecosystem in order to not only help our pensioners, but also help our economy. Looking at this huge industry as a whole, John, I mean, the United States is far and away the single most important market generally. The way you put it in the special report very well, I think, is that global trading starts when New York opens. But just as decades ago, London gave way to New York after economic supremacy passed from Britain to America, it's not hard to imagine a future when that'll change again and the global trading day will begin in Shanghai. So, John, how do you see China's position in the whole asset management industry developing? Well, there's a fairly broad consensus that the future of finance, if it's not Chinese, it's where a lot of the growth will come from. It's recently opened its mainland markets to foreign investors in shares and bonds. And asset management is growing faster in Asia than in the West. So time, size and momentum are on China's side. That's where the agreement really ends. There are still a lot of unknowns, as Mark Weedman of BlackRock emphasised. 
you have to put aside almost all the assumptions that we have from working in Europe or Japan or the United States or Canada or wherever and say it just works differently in China. So it's a very small industry relative to the size of the financial markets. There are no leading foreign players heavily involved today. We're all just starting. And the market itself is dominated by retail investors who are basically punters. We, along with other uh, asset managers, have been asked to participate in the Chinese markets in two ways. One is bringing global capital to China, and there's huge interest from clients around the world. It's probably the fastest growing ETF we've ever had is a China bond ETF we have in Europe that went from $100 million to $5 billion in just this year. But the second part is actually bringing professional standards and technology know-how about how to manage retirement funds to bring that to help the Chinese savers themselves. Big question for us and for the rest of the foreign asset management world is what role will the Chinese government eventually permit us to play? There's a lot of hope in the industry that growth in China is going to be the place where there's going to be incremental profit. What do you think is the prospects for making money in China as, as a foreign asset manager? So we're bullish on growing a viable, successful business in China. The Chinese government has clearly signaled that they want foreign companies to come and help bring technology and know-how. But we're realistic. We're realistic about two points. First, what is success? Success is like our role in Japan, which is that the foreign houses are relevant. They are significant players. But the domestic houses are just clearly much larger. And I think that's a reasonable, good hope for us in China. And then second, in a world of political balkanization and political conflict between the United States, Europe, Japan, and China, we all recognize that we live in a world where conflict could make those business prospects a little less attractive. So, John, in this episode of Money Talks, as in your special report, we've covered an awful lot of ground. And it seems that asset management is an industry in the midst of transformative change. After immersing yourself in their world, what predictions, if not prescriptions, do you have for the for the money doctors? How do you expect the industry to look different, say, 10 years from now? Well, I think the thing you can have most confidence about is that this trend towards a bifurcation of very large players on the one hand and smaller niche players on the other hand is going to play itself out over the next decade. It's not clear yet, I think, how the squeeze middle gets squeezed out. Do they join together with lots of M&A? That seems to be the very recent trend. But then mergers in asset management haven't been very successful. What seems to happen is that while the merger is going on, you lose a lot more clients than you're already losing. In terms of China, I can imagine a situation where the foreign companies that are now going in there actually do make money. There's a concern some Chinese companies will simply copy what you do and then will squeeze you out. I think that's actually much harder to do in asset management because it's actually not terribly clear what a successful asset manager does. So I can imagine that in 2030, we've got a fairly peaceful coexistence in that market. And finally, ESG. I suspect that ESG will become a very important part of the way companies market themselves. But I'm not sure it's the saviour of the asset management industry, or certainly not the large swathes of it that need saving. ESG is probably going to change how companies themselves do business. And so it's going to be much harder for asset managers to differentiate themselves using the ESG banner. But one thing I think that isn't going to change is that this is going to be a very profitable industry for those that survive. John O'Sullivan, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. Our thanks to Cathy Murphy at Fidelity Investments, Mark Weedman at BlackRock and Anne Glover at Amadeus Capital Partners for their insights. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. 
I do encourage you to read John's special report in full. You'll find it by going to economist.com and searching for The Money Doctors. If you're not yet a subscriber, now's your chance. We try to beat the benchmark and always provide a good return on your investment. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the notes for this episode. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a review or a rating on your podcast app. It makes all the difference. I'm Patrick Lane. And in London, this is The Economist. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 